The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. They might know about some operations that the U.S. conducts in in Yemen, but don't know that we have an actual proxy force under this program operating there. And, uh, you know, one of the places that that we were, you know, it was one of the first ones that I found out about, one of the most difficult to, to pin down was a program in Egypt called Enigma Hunter. Uh, where U.S. Special Operations Forces partnered with the Egyptian military for operations in the Sinai Peninsula. And, you know, this is an area where, you know, the, the Sinai is subject to a near total media blackout. Human rights groups have documented widespread abuses, including torture, extrajudicial killings, attacks on civilians. And um, are the 127 ECHO uh, proxy forces involved in these abuses? You know. We don't know because the the oversight is uh, is really lax, and uh, the reporting on it, you know, by the U.S. government is is almost nil. I'm Tyler McBrien, managing editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, August 9th, 2022. Last month, the Intercept published a new investigation from Alice Spiri and Nick Terse, looking into a secretive funding authority at the Pentagon known as 127E or 127 Echo. Using exclusive documents and interviews, the reporters revealed how U.S. Special Operations Forces are involved in a proxy war program on a far greater scale than previously known. To discuss the program and what it means for U.S. foreign policy, I sat down with Nick, an investigative journalist at The Intercept, who has reported on 127 Echo for years. We discussed the history of the funding authority, what these new documents and interviews can tell us about U.S. proxy wars, and how much we still don't know. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 9th. Nick Terse on the Pentagon's Secretive Funding Authority, 127E. Nick, I wanted to start first definitionally to kind of set the scene uh, with maybe a, a deceptively complex question, and that is, what is the 127E authority? Okay, so basically, 127 Echo is, is a rather obscure funding authority that allows the United States to utilize foreign forces as surrogates, outright proxies. It's unlike traditional BPC or building partner capacity programs or security assistance programs, because while the U.S. Uh, arms, trains, and provides intelligence 
uh, to these foreign forces. It isn't about building their capacity, building them up, or, or accomplishing the goals of, of their own governments. Instead, 127E partners are dispatched on U.S.-directed missions targeting U.S. enemies to achieve U.S. aims. And this program is run by America's most uh, elite troops, uh, Army Green Berets, Navy SEALs, and other special operations forces. And depending on the locale, they may accompany uh, their proxies into the field on missions. So these, these foreign partners, these U.S. proxies who are working with our special operations forces are fighting and killing on America's behalf. Great. And, and just kind of a, a brief survey of, of your reporting. It seems like you've been on the 127 Echo beat for a while. What, what first interested you in this, as you said, obscure, little-known Pentagon program? Yeah, I've been reporting on um, 127 Echo programs since 2017 or 2018. And basically, I, I started by looking at how they were used in Africa. I've been covering the U.S. military in Africa for more than 10 years now, closer to, to 15. And, you know, as I dug more into U.S. operations in Africa, U.S. military bases in Africa, uh, I started to hear about this. You know, at, at the time, I really wasn't even sure what it was. 127 Echo program, I think, is what I first heard. And, you know, I, I gathered a little more information, a little more. And then, um, I came to understand that this was uh, it was a, a funding authority that grew out of basically the, the earliest stages of, of the war on, on terror in Afghanistan. And you know, first I looked at how it was used in Africa. And then you know, for the last couple of years, I've been working on the reporting of uh, you know, how it's been used outside of Africa. But it, it took a, a long time to really dig into that. Uh, and it was only with uh, the assistance uh, of, of my, my partner in writing this, Alice Sperry, that we were able to put the entire uh, story together and finally publish on it. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into your uh, investigation that was just published in The Intercept uh, and some of the, the revelations that came to light with, with these new documents. But just to dig back into the history a bit of, of the 127 Echo Authority, you mentioned it has its origins in you know the early post-9-11 wars. Uh, if you could just kind of talk a bit more about its origin, what motivated the creation of this new authority? You know, what was the the military seeking to do that it felt like it couldn't do without the creation of this funding authority? Sure, that's right. You know, it's it begins with the the earliest days of U.S. war in Afghanistan, as uh, as commandos and CIA personnel sought to support the Afghan Northern Alliance in their fight against the Taliban. So we're we're talking about you know days, weeks after 9-11. And at that time, Army Special Operations Command realized that it lacked uh, the authority to provide direct payments to its new Afghan proxies, and it was forced to rely on CIA funding. And this prompted a, a broader push by Special Operations Command to secure the ability to support foreign forces on counterterrorism missions. So a corollary to uh, the CIA's long use of, of militia surrogates in Afghanistan and other places. And, you know, it first was known as the as Section 1208, and the authority was employed in the early years of the, after the invasion of Iraq. And, you know, that's, that's something else that uh, Alicia and I were able to, to break in our new reporting. So it, it came into being as 1208 in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, and then several years later, 
this funding authority was enshrined in the U.S. Federal Code under Title 10, 127E, so 127 ECHO. Could you give us a sense of the, the scope of these programs? Again, before we you know, fully get into to the new reporting, you mentioned you've been, you've been on the trail f- for quite some years now. What's the scope of these operations? You know, where are the, the theaters of operation? You know, how many missions have you found that this was attached to? You know, this, this has fluctuated over the years about you know, how, you know, how many of, of these uh, 127 ECHO programs were, have been run. And you know, some have come into being and then you know, they've, they've run their course and you know, they've, they've disappeared. But um, you know, we were able to confirm that at least uh, 14 uh, 127 ECHO programs were active in the greater Middle East and the Asia Pacific region. Uh, as recently as 2020. And we determined that uh, between 2017 and 2020, uh, U.S. commandos conducted at least 23 separate 127 ECHO programs across the world. And we were able to put this together through some documents that we uh, received through records requests and uh, interviews with, uh, with almost two dozen current and former uh, U.S. government officials. Yeah, I'm really interested in, in your reporting process. So without, you know, giving away too many of your trade secrets, how was this process of, of FOIAing documents related to 127 Echo, you know, similar or different from some of your past reporting? And, and similarly with, with the interviews, I was, I was struck with, with how f- forthcoming uh, particularly General Vodal was in speaking about it on the record. I guess if you could speak to the secrecy of the program and, and how you were able to bring some of these revelations to light. Yeah, this is a highly classified program, and you know, for for more than a year, I asked the the White House to provide some comment on this, and uh, you know, they referred me to the the Department of Defense. I went to um, the Office of the Secretary of Defense. They'd been uh, threatening to respond to my questions for uh, several months and never have. And uh, Special Operations Command. Uh, itself was at least forthcoming in saying that they wouldn't say anything. They at least uh, came out and and said that these are classified programs. We won't comment on them in in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, there there was no, you know, clear way in through press offices. And, you know, with with Freedom Information Act requests, they take a long time, and I had to put in a a lot of uh, different requests. And, the documents that I got back were highly redacted, and it was a matter of, uh, you know, fitting together the small amount of information that we could glean from a lot of uh, different documents, and then uh, Alicia and I taking them to to our sources. And to to write this specific article, I think I, I started uh, reporting of it about two years ago, and you know, Alicia and I spent together about. Uh, six months on it. So it was it was a long reporting process to to get this. And, you know, like you, I was really struck by by General Votel's, you know, frank uh, discussion of this program. It's it's not common when uh, dealing with 127 Echo or, or similarly classified programs. Uh, he's a retired uh, four star army general. He headed both Special Operations Command and Central Command, which oversees U.S. military efforts in the Middle East. So he had a a front row seat and oversaw these programs, you know, in, in a in a way that uh, very few commanders uh, have. So I was, um, you know, it, it was it was exceptionally helpful to have uh, 
you know, his his assistance in this. Yeah, I'd like to amend my my previous question. Perhaps forthcoming was a bit too generous <laughs> or, or strong of a word, but um, you know, in in keeping with this with this theme of of speaking with with General Votel, I think it gave a really interesting window into some of the arguments in favor of programs like this. Could you could you speak to um, you know some of these arguments that you heard from either the the, the general or, or other government officials who who advocate for for these programs and you know who speak to the 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 upshot of them? Yeah, General Votel also. I don't think he's actually named in the in in this article, but in uh, some previous reporting on this, uh, retired Brigadier General Don Balduck, who headed uh, Special Operations Command Africa, has also been fairly forthcoming on this. And both they and and people that we spoke to uh, on background and and off the record, uh, commanders associated with this program, really tout it. You know, they see it as exceptionally successful. Uh, one, it keeps U.S. boots on the ground to a minimum. Uh, so it reduces the risk for U.S. forces. This risk is outsourced to partner forces. But, um, you know, this this has been a, a real selling point of the program. Another thing is is access. And this also comes through even in the, the documents that are highly redacted. You can see that uh, again and again, programs are touted as, as providing uh, U.S. special operators with access to areas that would otherwise be denied. And we're talking about even the most elite U.S. forces couldn't get to these places if they weren't working with uh, foreign surrogates. So, you know, they're they're able to to operate in forward denied areas that uh, that otherwise uh, U.S. personnel just just couldn't uh, operate in on an, on any kind of you know long running basis. So these are are two of the uh, most important selling points when you talk to commanders and and people who are see the program in, in, a, in a very positive light. The current uh, commander of Special Operations Command, a four-star general named uh, General Richard Clark, uh, he's also touted this uh, program for years before Congress, and he's said that it directly resulted in the capture or killing of thousands of terrorists. Uh, so, you know, successful in that way as well. Clark's claims, however, they, they can't be verified in any way, or we weren't able to. Yeah, you know, I went to SOCOM and asked, you know, what what the actual figures were that uh, that General Clark was was quoting, and the spokesperson at Special Operations Command told me that they don't actually have figures on those captured, killed during 127 Echo missions. So, you know, where did Clark get those numbers? Uh, you know, your your guess is as good as mine. So, can we talk about the flip side now? Then I think implicit in in some of the benefits are actually some drawbacks and some criticisms, especially in thinking about U.S. forces in places where they maybe, quote unquote, shouldn't be or or couldn't access otherwise. So what did some of the critics of the program tell you? Yeah, I mean, there there's no shortage of uh, criticisms of this program uh, in terms of uh, accountability and oversight. You know, critics of, of 127 Echo warn that, uh, you know, in addition to the risk of unanticipated military escalation and the uh, potential cost of engaging in these myriad conflicts around the world, some operations may amount to an unlawful use of force. And they also uh, point to the, uh, the, the problems uh, associated with working with uh, these surrogates around the world. The 127 Echo Authority is unique uh, because the programs are exempt from a safeguard that's required of other 
security assistance programs. Uh, it's, it's known as the Leahy Law, uh, which is basically the, the scrutiny of uh, recipients' human rights records. It's named after uh, Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont. It's been you know, a fixture of U.S. security assistance for many years now. But, uh, but there's a, a loophole that exempts 127 ECHO. Again, proponents of the program say that it allows the, the military to, to set these programs up fast and, uh, and, and employ them without these encumbrances. But uh, there's, there's a lot of members of Congress and, and those in the, the human rights community who say this is, it's, it's a major problem. And there's been a legislative effort to close that loophole by requiring uh, 127 ECHO partners to undergo uh, human rights vetting. Last year, it was in the House version of the uh, the annual defense bill, but it was cut during negotiations with the Senate. And just this past week, uh, Senator Chris Von Holland of, of Maryland and Representative Sarah Jacobs of California introduced legislation to again close the 127E vetting loophole that would allow uh, for, for shutting off funds to units that were found to be committing atrocities. And also, they're asking for an expansion of uh, 127 uh, ECHO reporting requirements. You know, this is this is something else that you know critics of the program say that uh, there there just isn't enough reporting by uh, Special Operations Command by the Defense Department on what uh, these surrogates are out there doing. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, 
I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, you began to, to talk about some of the things that uh, distinguish 127 Echo programs from other, you know, equip and train programs, such as, you know, the ones that you mentioned that the CIA is engaged in or, or other units of the military. To get into some more of the mechanics of, of exactly what this looks like, were you able to obtain any information of, of specific 127E operations in specific places and what it looked like, essentially, you know, how many commandos were involved? Were U.S. troops actually engaged in combat or were they, you know, behind the scenes and where some of these these things happened? Now, it, it depends on the uh, on the locale. You know, when there have been several 127 Echo programs run in Somalia, for example, and uh there, it's, uh, it's Navy SEALs that are working with their local Somali counterparts or surrogates from neighboring countries that are conducting operations uh, with U.S. personnel in Somalia. These are they're very small teams of, of U.S. forces, but in Somalia and in most places in Africa, these U.S. forces uh, go out into the field uh, with their foreign partners. One of the uh, 
revelations that we had in our, our recent reporting, Alicia and I was um, uh, revealing the existence of a 127 Echo program known as Obsidian Tower that was run in Tunisia. And there was a small team of, uh, of marine raiders, and they went out with their, their local counterparts who were top tier, tier one Tunisian commandos. And, you know, we found that it was one of these 127 Echo missions uh, back in 2017 that ended up in, uh, it's, it's been reported as a, as a firefight that, uh, that U.S. troops were involved in. Yeah, this is it, it's supposed to be foreign surrogates who are involved in in combat on our behalf, but uh, but when U.S. troops go out with them, uh, even though they're supposed to stay within the uh, the last uh, area of covering concealment, you know, on, on the battlefield, this isn't always uh, possible or, or practical, and it ends up that uh, that U.S. troops on 127 Echo missions can be involved in full-on combat, uh, unbeknownst to the American people. And unbeknownst, uh, generally to to most people at the State Department or even members of Congress, were you able to confirm whether or not U.S. troops were killed in action in any of these operations? You know, we've um, we were told that uh, that U.S. troops were injured in one twenty seven Echo operations. We we know uh, for certain that this happened during the combat in Tunisia in twenty seventeen. It's very likely that it happened in uh, in Somalia that same year. A Navy SEAL uh, named Kyle Milliken was killed on a uh, advise assist company operation. It's very likely that was a 127 Echo operation, but we haven't been able to to pin that down. And uh, Africom Special Operations Command, uh, the Pentagon, never come out and said so. But uh, but all signs point to it being. Uh, a death related to the 127 Echo program. Now, this wouldn't be the Lawfare podcast without getting to some of the uh, finer legal details of of the program and kind of the legal justifications behind this use of force abroad. Could you talk about sort of the legal structure behind uh, 127 Echo? Are they, for example, covered under the 2001 AUMF or or are there other (laughs) uh, legal um, structures at play here? Yeah. Now, see, we're we're getting into... uh, one of these murky areas. Now, 127 Echo is a funding authority, so all it really is 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 you know pots of money that are available, and the authority for conducting these missions is separate. Now, you know theoretically, these missions, because they're generally targeting Al Qaeda or ISIS or their affiliates. You know, the, the U.S. government takes a very liberal view of, uh, of the AUMF and, you know, most likely has lumped them in under, under that rubric. Now, there are a lot of critics who, who will tell you that, um, you know, these affiliates or Al-Shabaab in Somalia had, had nothing to do, obviously, with 9-11, shouldn't be covered by the AUMF. Uh, but, you know, even accepting that, if you look at some place like Tunisia, you know, there have been 22, 23 countries that have been mentioned uh, over the years by the White House in connection with the authorization for the use of military force, 2001. And, uh, and Tunisia is not one of them. They've never made the list. Uh, but, you know, as I said, under 127 Echo, there was uh, combat by U.S. forces in Tunisia under this program. So you know, how you can square that circle it's impossible to to know, and you know the the 
the White House, the U.S. military, they won't talk about it. But this is this is something that, um, you know, for for this article, you know, we spoke with uh, with Catherine Ebright, who's uh, a leading expert on 127 Echo. Uh, she's working on a report on it right now for the Brennan Center for Justice, where she is uh, as on staff as counsel. And she told us that there's good reason to suspect that the Pentagon has used uh, 127 Echo partners to engage in combat you know, beyond the scope of any authorization for the use of military force or permissible self-defense. So basically, she said that this amounts to an unauthorized use of force, or another way of saying it is that it, it may violate the Constitution. Your point about that this is a funding authority is well taken. I think it's a the reporting is a great example of of you know show me show me a budget and I'll show you. <laughs> society's values or, or, or what have you. And we've touched on transparency and oversight quite a lot. I'm curious what we still don't know. And if you care to disaggregate the we there, um, I, one thing I was struck by in your reporting was uh, the fact that many State Department officials or even members of Congress have access to some of this information, but they don't know what they don't know uh, in a way. So I guess it's a two-part question, kind of who knows what and, and what does the, the public still not know about this? Yeah, the Pentagon really guards this information on 127 Echo. They they hold this very close, and you know, written into the the law, written into the funding authority, they have to brief chief of mission. So uh, basically, the the ambassador of the country where the the 127 Echo program is is uh, is active. But you know, we were told you know by by experts we spoke with and uh, government officials uh, during our reporting that. This is where it generally ends for the State Department, that the chief of mission finds out, but the information stays uh, in country and never gets back to the home base in, in Washington, D.C. So State Department personnel that really you know, would, would have a good grasp of the, uh, the, the legal ins and outs of 127 Echo and you know, possible issues with, uh, with accountability, with oversight, with... Um, you know, the partners that the, the U.S. Uh, is working with, uh, they never find out about this. Same thing with, with Congress. Uh, members of the Armed Services Committee have access to information on 127 Echo, but generally their uh, staff doesn't. And most members of Congress don't have the time to devote to uh, going and, and reading up on this. And members of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who should <laughs> know about the affairs of the U.S. abroad, uh, you know, what the United States is doing, don't have access to this material. You know, they should be the ones who have eyes on, you know, where uh, the U.S. is, you know, for want of a better uh, word, at war, and uh, and they don't have uh, access to this information. So I think this is, you know, this is a, another aspect of, of real accountability and oversight problems. Yeah, if, if members of Congress uh, don't know about this, you know, obviously, most of the American public has no idea. They they don't know that um, you know, that we're we're running a program in in Lebanon that's targeting ISIS. They might know about some operations that the U.S. conducts in in Yemen, but don't know that we have an actual proxy force under this program operating there. And uh, you know, one of the places that that we were, you know, it was one of the first ones that I found out about. One of the most difficult to to pinned down was a program in Egypt called Enigma Hunter, uh, where U.S. Special Operations Forces partnered with the Egyptian military for operations in the Sinai Peninsula. And, you know, this is an area where 
you know, the, the Sinai is subject to a near total media blackout. Human rights groups have documented widespread abuses, including torture, extrajudicial killings, attacks on civilians. And um, are the 127 ECHO uh, proxy forces involved in these abuses? You know, we don't know because the, the oversight is, uh, is really lax and uh, the reporting on it, you know, by the U.S. government is, is almost nil. So, you know, these are these are the types of things that we don't know, but uh, that some members of Congress think we, that we should. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, Alicia and I continue to try and dig into. I'm sure the irony was not lost on you that the program that you had most difficulty figuring <laughs> out was called Enigma Hunter. Exactly. Yeah. And finally, I kind of wanted to, to zoom out a bit from this program, you know, as, as someone who's had extensive experience reporting on, on U.S. foreign policy and, and national security how has the the 127 echo authority been indicative of of kind of our post 9/11 or the US's post 9/11 wars is it you know indicative of a broader trend and and what can it tell us about for example the Biden administration's commitment to ending what what many people call the endless wars yeah i mean i i was struck by the fact that you know right before President Biden's recent trip to the Middle East, he said, you know, he was going to be the first president in in two decades to travel to a Middle East where you know U.S. forces weren't uh, engaged in combat. <laughs> there were there were drone strikes, uh, you know, leading right up to it. So, you know, that seemed to put the lie to it. But um, but I was I was struck by the fact there are you know numerous 127 Echo programs uh, which are you know you can't differentiate from combat that are that are going on there so i think in that way you know it's 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 very much of these uh these post 9-11 wars the forever wars uh these programs are going on you know basically in in secret unknown to the american people you know small brush fire wars uh in in countries around the world and it is indicative of of a trend there are some other programs that that uh, Alicia and I mentioned in our our Intercept article that are that are very similar to uh, 127 Echo in uh, in the way that they operate and also in the way that they skirt uh, effective oversight. Uh, we mentioned one called Section 1202, which came into being in in 2018, and this uh, provides support to foreign irregular forces that are engaged in irregular warfare. It's even a little scarier than 127 Echo because it's uh, focused on so-called uh, near-peer competitors. So we're talking about China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and uh, you know it's 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 scarier uh, having having U.S. forces involved in uh, you know it's 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 scary enough having them involved in in combat unbeknownst to the American people in a place like uh, Lebanon or or Somalia, but uh, you know. You know, possibly ending up in uh, in a, a shooting war with uh, with China or Russia uh, raises you know a, a lot more concerns. And uh, you know, we we also found uh, another authority uh, buried in the U.S. code uh, called 127 Foxtrot 127F. This is is another black box program that seems very similar to 127 Echo, and we're trying to dig into that. So. You know, there, there are a number of these authorities that have popped up over the years, and the U.S. military seems very interested in, in using them. And it, it's, it is a way to, you know, conduct operations that are as, as close to off the books as you can get for the military. 
Well, Nick, thank you so much for your reporting and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, and our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, buy some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. This podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.